Mark chapter 2. I have a certain number of pages that I usually have for my outlines. I won't tell you what that number is. It would scare you. But I will tell you that I have about two-thirds of that number this morning. So that should make you happy. So let's see how that works out. Mark chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse number 18. Verse number 18. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Pray with me. Father, we're so thankful for this passage of Scripture. I pray now you'd fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, in these few remaining moments to speak clearly and accurately and practically and uh, make it alive and make it real and make it helpful to all who are here. I pray, Father, you teach us just exactly what we need to hear today. And as always, Lord, if there are those who have never trusted Christ, who are perhaps relying on the old way, I pray, Father, that this day they would come to know Jesus as their Savior, understand the gospel and receive it. So bless this time we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This particular account, like many accounts in the Gospels, appears in all three of the synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke, in his account, provides an interesting detail, which we didn't see here in Mark, and I want to share it with you. Luke chapter 5 and verse number 39, Luke said, No one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, The old is better. The old is is better. And even though Mark didn't mention that here, it was clearly part of the account, and I think that phrase sums up what the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples uh, were thinking here. The old ways were better. I lived for several years in the state of New Jersey, and while I was there, God gave my wife and I this, uh, this nice little house. I say nice kind of in a facetious way. It was really more like a shack, but it was, it was, a, it was a nice little house, and the Lord gave it to us, and we, we loved it. And while we lived there, we decided to remodel that little house. And so I set to work. Uh, of course, I had no money. I had absolutely no money back then. And so I tried to make repairs and renovations to this house on a shoestring budget. And one of the things that I tried to do was to reuse old wood. So I would tear down a wall, and I would pull the the two-by-fours out of it and painstakingly remove every nail from the two-by-fours, and then I would try to reuse them. But one of the things that I, I found was that driving nails in old wood was very difficult. And actually, it was pretty much petrified with age, which gives you some idea of how old the house was. But, uh, and when I did manage to drive a nail through that piece of wood, usually it would split the wood and it would be useful, useless. And I think that that might be what Jesus was facing here, a similar situation. The Pharisees or the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John were trying to reuse old wood. They were trying to fit Jesus into their old ways. We might say that they longed for the good old ways. And I want us to notice just for a moment this morning how Jesus responded to that thinking. 
Look at verses 18 through 20, and I want you to notice, first of all, Jesus said that he brought gladness and not sadness. He brought gladness and not sadness. Now, we notice right away that the topic under discussion here is fasting. Fasting. Merriam-Webster defines fasting as abstaining from food for a period of time. How many of you have ever practiced fasting voluntarily? I'm talking about fasting, abstaining from food. John's disciples were apparently fasting here or practicing it, as were the disciples of the Pharisees. We see that in verse number 18. Now, we don't know why. There's nothing told here about why they would have been doing this. John's disciples might have been fasting because of the fact that John had recently been thrown into prison. We saw that in the previous chapter, verse number 14. It might also have been a uh, uh, part of their, their repentance. You know, John's gospel was a gospel of repentance. He came preaching repentance. And so maybe this was part of that and played into that. With the disciples of the Pharisees, we probably have a little bit more of an understanding of why they were fasting. For the most part, it was uh, simply a matter of tradition, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Uh, Everything about the Pharisees were driven by tradition, but it was also a way to be seen by men. They did it as an outward display that others could see, and we'll see that also, and that was also always a driving force with them. Scripture's silent, so we can't be sure. There, There could have been other reasons, but for some reason, these two groups were fasting. And leaving their motivations aside for a moment, we have to think about that word, fasting, and uh, try to figure out what uh, the Bible teaches about it in general, because there is a lot that the Bible says about fasting. Uh, And I think think we could sum it up by saying that it is a Christian discipline. That is a good thing. That is encouraged in Scripture, if done rightly. We see all kinds of examples, don't we, of godly men fasting. Moses fasted. Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. How many of you have ever fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? Have you really? Praise the Lord. Elijah fasted. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse number 8, and he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights. Daniel fasted. Daniel chapter 10 and verse number 3, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Of course, Jesus fasted. We read about that in the previous chapter. Luke chapter 4 verse number 1 tells the same story. Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. I would think so. Paul fasted, Acts chapter 9 and verse number 9. He was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. Cornelius fasted, Acts chapter 10 and verse number 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. Acts chapter 13, we see that the church at Antioch corporately fasted. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So example after example, I mean, I mean that's just a handful, I think. We can see that godly men and women uh, throughout Scripture, we see examples of them fasting. We even see some examples of ungodly people fasting. For example, rotten Ahab, whom R.G. Lee in his famous Payday Someday sermon, who if I could get it down to less than an hour and a half, I might preach that sometime on Old Fashioned Sunday. But in that famous sermon that he preached, he described Ahab as the vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation, the worst of Israel's kings. Ahab whom Scripture says 
that there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. He did very abominably. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Even Ahab, rotten, vile, human-toed Ahab, fasted. And God blessed it. First Kings 21, 27, it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. We could spend a lot of time talking about fasting this morning, but the fact is I think the Bible is clear. It is a, it is a Christian discipline that is something that we ought to practice. It has value. There are all kinds of Christian disciplines. We ought to be reading our Bibles. That's a Christian discipline. We ought to be praying and practicing personal and corporate prayer. That's why we meet on Wednesday nights for prayer meeting. Uh, that's a Christian discipline. Church attendance, what we're doing here right now, is a Christian discipline. And so, too, is fasting. And I think the Bible is clear that it's a good and a godly thing. Now, the Pharisees did it for a wrong reason. They did do it to be seen of men. Matthew 6.16, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward. They disfigured their faces. They made themselves look put upon. They made themselves look hungry. They made themselves look like they were really suffering for the Lord. They disheveled their clothes. They, they did things to make sure. One place I read said they sucked in their cheeks so that they would look gaunt before people. Uh, they wanted to make sure that people saw them and that they were, uh, they were fasting. But Jesus said, do it from the heart. Do it in private between yourself and God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 17. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that you don't appear unto men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret, and your Father which sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus said fasting is an aid to prayer. In Matthew chapter 17, and verse 21, Howbeit this kind goes not out but by prayer and fasting. And so I think fasting is a discipline we ought to practice more. As you can tell by looking at me, I don't practice it nearly enough. But we need to practice it more. And, and when we think about that, I guess we can see why, at least one reason, why the Pharisees or the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John would have been a little bit perplexed. They would have been a little bit perplexed here that Jesus' disciples did not seem to fast. Because regardless of their motivation, Scripture is clear that it's something we ought to do. And so they're looking at this group. They don't see them practicing this discipline at all. But I think they simply didn't understand a key truth about Jesus Christ. There's a couple of them here, but there's, there's, there's one in particular I want to think about right now, and that's this. Jesus, uh, Jesus came to bring gladness, not sadness. And whatever else is true about fasting, in most cases where fasting is practiced, there's at least some implication of sorrow. There's some, some implication of that, and Jesus didn't come to bring sorrow. He came to bring joy. He likened his presence with us to a wedding feast in verse number 19 there. Remember how John the Baptist described Jesus? He, he described him as the bridegroom. In John chapter 3 and verse 29, he that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom which stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He's talking about Christ there, referring to him as the bridegroom and using this picture of a wedding. Remember where Jesus' first miracle took place. It took place... In a wedding. And as these detractors were questioning the lack of fasting among, these, among his followers, he was answering by saying that his presence brings the joy of a wedding. 
Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I know too many Christians, and probably you do too, who are down in the dumps all the time. You know any Christians like that? Long-faced all the time. Thumb-sucky all the time. Downtrodden everywhere they go. Is that the way Christians are supposed to be? I don't think that's the way that's supposed to be. They never seem to be happy. They always seem to be that way. And yet, the fact is, and this is just one place where maybe we might draw this, this application, but the fact is, all throughout Scripture, we see clearly taught that there is nothing more joyful than the Christian life. I can, I can speak from, from, uh, I can give my testimony to that. When Jesus Christ comes into your life, He brings joy. He brings gladness. It doesn't mean everything's going to be happy all the time. But there is an overriding joy in your life that nothing else can match. Salvation is just the start of it. Every single day, each succeeding step in the Christian walk brings new cause for rejoicing in joy. How many Christians would say amen to George Beverly Shea's song, The Longer I Serve Him, The Sweeter He Grows? We all would say that, wouldn't we, those of us who really know Christ? The more that I love Him, the more love He bestows. Each day is like heaven. My heart overflows the longer I serve Him the sweeter he grows. Isn't that true? Would you say amen to that, Christians? It's true. And heaven will be the culmination of it when we get to heaven and we find the, the, the real culmination of all of our joy. Now, Jesus did say that there would be times when fasting was appropriate. Verse number 20 is an example of that. With respect to his disciples, who he was referring to there, there was coming a day when there was going to be sorrow. They were going to have to deal with the passion week and all of the pain and suffering that went along with that. And into each of our lives, there's going to be sorrow. There's no getting around it. There's no one who lives any kind of a life on this earth who doesn't face bad times, who doesn't face difficulties, who doesn't find a place where maybe fasting would be appropriate. But one day, when we get to heaven, one day we're going to look back and we're going to realize that those were not the things that defined our Christian existence. Those were not the things that were at the top of the list. We're going to see that joy and rejoicing defined it, not sorrow, because Jesus came to bring gladness, not sadness. Well, he gave another answer to their question as to why don't your disciples fast. One is they just misunderstood his purpose, gladness, not sadness. But another one was this, and this is in verses 21 and 22. He said he came to bring a new way. Jesus brought a new way. Are the old ways always better? Some would say. Marge is nodding her head back there. Some would say the old ways are always better. The human mind naturally rebels against anything new. We grow accustomed to the way things have always been. We like them that way. We don't like our familiar patterns being changed. Christopher Columbus is a perfect example of this, isn't it? He had a theory that the earth was round. And uh, kind of rebelled against the, 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 the knowledge of the day. He dared to present a new theory that challenged the old thinking. There is a process in the business world. It's written about a lot in, in uh, business and management books and things like that called change management. And it describes ways of mitigating and minimizing the stress and the angst that comes upon people when you're trying to implement change in an organization. And it's necessary because we don't like change. We see that in marriages. We see it when, uh, you know, somebody enters a marriage relationship that's used to squeezing the toothpaste tube in the middle. 
and they have to learn to screen this as a toothpaste tube from the end. And, uh, you know, those kinds of things are hard. The religious mind may be the very worst at this, and the Pharisees may be the pinnacle example of this kind of thinking. You see, they had built up a tradition that they had equated with divine law. They believed that their tradition was law. The actual law said that only one fast was required. That was on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 27. That's the only fast that is prescribed in all of Scripture for the Jewish people. And yet the Pharisees' tradition required fasting at least twice a week. And they gave that the same level of importance. Here's how one person described it. He said, once again, we have a group of offended Pharisees. Evidently, this was a fast day on which this incident occurred. The law of Moses required only one day of the year to be a fast day, the day known as Yom Kippur, which the Jews observe to this day. The Day of Atonement is the only fast day the law requires. But the Pharisees, in order to show how zealous they were, had through the centuries designated day after day as fast days, for they regarded fasting as the best way to call God's attention to their piety and, incidentally, the attention of men. This is why the Pharisees put on sackcloth, rubbed ashes on their faces, and sucked in their cheeks so they would look gaunt to call people's attention to how pious and righteous they were. And they hoped God would take notice too. Many days of the year had become fast days, long established in custom, so it was taken for granted everyone would fast on these days. And so you see, the Pharisees wanted Jesus' disciples to fit into their tradition. He wanted his new way to fit into their old way. And the same thing happens today, doesn't it? The same thing happens in many of our lives. Some today try to fit the new way of grace into the old way of works. And yet Paul said they're completely mutually exclusive. Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. Can't have them both. It's one or the other. But some try to fit it in. Some today try to fit the new way of grace into the old way of tradition. This is the way we've always done things. In the first case, salvation is the issue. But in the second case, it's our methods of worship. It's how we serve. It's, it's uh, our lifestyles that are the issue. But you see, Jesus here illustrated the fallacy of this thinking. He said he came to bring a new way, not try to fit into the old way. He brought a new way. He described the folly of putting an unshrunk cloth patch on an old, brittle, already shrunken garment. The stronger new cloth would tear the old, uh, the old cloth and ruin it. He described pouring fermenting gas-emitting wine into old, brittle goatskins that will not stretch. The wine will ferment and the brittle skin will break. Can't do it. And so Jesus came to bring a completely new way. Jesus came to free us from the tyranny of the old way. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. He fulfilled that old way on Calvary and did away with it forever. Now, you need to think about what that means. There's more than one way to fulfill something. When it says that Jesus fulfilled the law on the cross, it's very important to think about what that means. Think, think for example, about an acorn. You can, you can smash an acorn with a hammer, or you can plant an acorn. Either way does away with it, does it not? But one way fulfills it and the other one destroys it. Jesus did not destroy the law. Jesus fulfilled it on the cross of Calvary. And so now, for the one who is born again, the Christian, the believer, the person who quits trusting in his own good works and accepts Christ's gift of salvation, for the one trusting only and wholly in Jesus Christ, the old way is gone. 
and everything is made new. Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Revelation 21.5, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So why didn't Jesus' disciples fast when the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees did? Well, he gives us two reasons here. And maybe you see some others there, but I see two. Because Jesus came to bring gladness and not sadness, and because Jesus came to bring a new way, not a rehash of the old. I wonder this morning, have you discovered the joy that comes only from knowing Jesus Christ? If you have accepted him as your Savior and Lord, you can know that joy. Have you? Have you accepted that new way? Or are you like the Pharisees trying to fit the new way into some old tradition, trying to be good, trying to please God through some kind of good works of your own? The new way is to quit trying to work your way to heaven, to quit trying to be good enough to earn God's favor, and instead simply to trust in what Christ has already done for you on the cross of Calvary. Have you done that? I heard the testimony once of a singer. I was at a, a concert. I think it was at Hartville Kitchen, as a matter of fact, where I heard this. And I can't remember the group. I can't remember the person. I just remember the event. Uh, this, uh, this singer in this quartet was giving his testimony. And he described how just a few weeks prior, during one of his own concerts, he had uh, trusted Christ as his Savior. And, you know, you could hear a murmur go through the crowd because everybody thought, What? This fellow has been singing gospel music for years. We've all been to multiple ones of his concerts. And before he was with this particular group, he sung for years and years and years before that. But somewhere along the line, he quit trusting in the old way and started trusting in the new. And he gave his life to Christ and trusted him, even though he'd been singing about him all the way. And, you know, I think there are many good church-going people who have been very faithful to the house of God who aren't saved, who aren't saved because they're tied up the old way. They've never turned their life over to Christ in a real and personal way. They've never really trusted him completely. They're still trusting at least a little bit in their own good works. If you were to pin them down and ask them how they know for certain they're on their way to heaven, one of the things that would come first out of their mouth is, well, I'm as good as the next person. I do okay. Still trusting in works, maybe trusting in baptism, maybe believing because they're a member of a church or a member of some well-known denomination or something, anything other than Jesus and him alone. Some are still trusting that way. You see, Jesus came to bring a new way, and we need to embrace it. Well, let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the new way of grace. Thank you, Father, that we no longer need to strive to work our way to heaven. We never did, but perhaps we thought we did. We know, Lord, the Scripture teaches that always, always salvation has been by grace through faith, and yet Jesus made it clear. So help us, Father, to understand it, to apply it to our lives. I pray every one of us would look right now deep into our hearts and ask ourselves, what am I trusting in? Am I believing that because I'm a good enough person I'll get to heaven? Am I believing that because I was baptized or because I'm a member of this church or some other church, am I believing that for any of those kinds of reasons, anything that could be called a work, I'm going to heaven? And Father, help us to see that if that is our case, if that is what we trust, if that is what we're following and believing in, then we're lost. 
Help us, Father, to trust the new way, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he died on the cross of Calvary and paid the price for our sins. He did the work. There's no work for us to do except to place our faith and trust in him. So if there's even one here today, Lord, who is trusting in the wrong thing, would you help them to trust in the right? May they receive Christ as their Savior this day. May they pray, Lord Jesus, I I do know that I'm a sinner, and I do know that I've been trusting in the wrong thing. But right now, right here, I pray and ask that you would be my Savior and my Lord.